0: So this, like everything else, is actually about narcissism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Or a resurrection. Or a resurrection. He's dead. And now his like or- crossed arms are coming back. Now he's like bleh, Frankensteining back from the dead. Yeah,
0: but he's searching for an experience with an erotic other here and he's not having one. So Is this the, body- the
1: necrophilia episode? Did we just go there? Welcome to the Black Box Poetry Podcast. Uh, My name is Anastasia Nicholas, and I'm joined here by my two comrades-at-arms. Say hey, guys. Hey.
2: I am Sean. I study Victorian poetry. I'm Isaac. I'm a poet and
0: translator of Russian and Ukrainian.
1: And again, I'm Anastasia. I also study poetry and poetics at the University of Rochester. We hope you've joined us for our first three episodes, because tonight we're recording our fourth Slash fifth, because we've recorded this before and it got lost to the gods. You'll hear a lot more about that.
2: Which is pretty, it's a pretty big accomplishment for people who have only been doing this for five months. It gives you an uh, idea of
0: the level of technical skill on display with poets trying to make a podcast that we already have a lost episode.
2: Also, our scheduling abilities. Really, the lost episode, it was, I think, quite possibly the best thing we ever did. You know, there is uh there's no digressions about, about psychoanalysis. All, everyone speaks exactly the same amount. There are no problems with volume. Uh you know, like people who hear it weep and uh feel moved at a human level. But uh it it was lost to the ages, like so many good men.
1: Right. No monologuing, because we never do that. <laughs> but, but not to uh, you know, <laughs> Not to cut off a good no. monologue or anything. Tonight's episode yeah. is about line breaks. <laughs> that would be line breaks, which are we also call enjambments sometimes. Sometimes incorrectly, sometimes correctly. We'll help you guys out with that term. Other people call them line endings. It's kind of the thing that makes poem look like a poem. So we're doing an episode about that. Our second episode, again, about that. So guys... Let's uh, chat a sec about what we have to say about line breaks.
0: I think the most obvious thing about line breaks is they get the reader in the proper mindset for poetry because they signal that the language is going to be more compressed and more load-bearing and smaller units of language are going to be doing more work than they do in a common-day context.
2: The thing about it is that often with poetry, there's some other element that is in addition to the way that we normally use language and is altering the way that you experience the language. So there are a lot of traditions of using rhyme or meter or um, beginning lines with alliteration as a way to add like an, an auditory element onto poetry. And the interesting thing about line breaks in the abstract is in a lot of contemporary poetry... They are in a kind of weird position where they're sort of visual, but they're also somewhat auditory. And one of the things that I think is often a little bit difficult about looking at contemporary poetry is the way that line breaks do have to be incorporated into the way that you read a poem, but not in a way that is like any normal punctuation. So it's kind of a pause, but it's also not a pause. It's not a pause in the way that any normal you know, part of written language is.
1: So, the two things I'm hearing so far are that line breaks kind of create the conventions or like prepare us for the conventions that we're about to kind of walk into when we're confronted with like the genre of poetry. The same way that when you read a biography, you walk in looking for facts, you don't quite do the same thing when you're opening up a novel, right? So, we're kind of talking about conventions of genre, was kind of what Isaac was saying, I think. And Sean, you're kind of talking about the way that it functions sort of as a type of punctuation and sort of tries to like. Um, is another way for us to kind of control and gauge how we're receiving information, which is also kind of what Isaac was saying, too. Does that sound right?
2: Yeah, I I guess the other thing we could say is that, like, the line break becomes the main, like, uh, magic trick for contemporary poets at some point in the last, like, I don't know when it happened, but, like, several decades. And so, like, if you've ever read a poem in The New Yorker, the uh, line breaks don't feel inevitable. They feel heavily evitable. They feel as evitable as anything can be. It becomes sort of like, um, like a cheap way of kind of like saying, hey, reader, this isn't prose. This is a poem. <laughs> You're not in Kansas anymore, sweetheart. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah.
1: I have a feeling we have a lot more snark coming about that topic. Uh, hang on to your hats, folks. I think the last thing I'm going to throw up on the wall about line breaks is we'll talk a little bit more about it. But it's kind of the way that line breaks at the end. Well, at the end of a line, obviously, will make us think a little bit more about where the unit of sense ends, um, because it usually runs across syntax. So sometimes the end of a line is where a period is, right? And then it jumps into white space. um, And sometimes it doesn't. Uh, The line ends, there's no period. That's called enjambment. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, And then we jump down to the next line. And sometimes that will divide a sentence, and normally we think of a sentence being a unit of sense, and all of a sudden, the line can be a unit of sense kind of nested within the sentence as a unit of sense. So I think those are the the three main things that we're talking about. Conventions of the genre, line break as a type of punctuation, uh, line break as something that kind of uh, makes us think about units of sense differently, plus the added coda of some snarky snarkersons about uh, contemporary poetry tricks. So I brought to A Poor Old Woman by William Carlos Williams, who I would argue is the master of the in-jam, but, you know, I'll let Sean and Isaac fight me on that one in a minute. To A Poor Old Woman. Munching a plum on the street, a paper bag of them in her hand. They taste good to her. They taste good to her. They taste good to her. You can see it by the way she gives herself to the one half sucked out in her hand, comforted, a solace of ripe plums, seeming to fill the air. They taste good to her.
2: So one thing you'd say about this is there's a section in the middle that's just the same phrase three times in a row they taste good to her but it's also causing you to become aware of how you're losing track of what what the poem is focusing on so if you start by saying they taste good to her line break that's a really solid straightforward observation and then if you say they taste good line break to her it's something that's being said independently of her opinion it's just you know these plums they taste good but part of the same sentence the next line begins to her. If you take that as still part of the same unit of sense, then it's the same thing that you already heard, but the emphasis has been shifted. But if you read it in terms of the line break, what you have instead is suddenly shifting it back to the really subjective part of it, where it's all about her reaction to them. And then after that, you have good to her, which again is kind of following what you've already seen. You never have a period at the end of any of, the things that seem like they should be sentences elsewhere in the poem you only have it to kind of on the one hand give you a reasonable sentence which is the same thing you've already seen on the other hand let you bleed past it um, and have something that is totally shifting your perspective around
1: yeah this poem that second stanza um right only has that one period so it doesn't even do that thing where the syntax is kind of crossing the syntax being like where the period is, uh, is like at odds with where the the end of the line is, except for in that third line of the second stanza. But what's interesting is you still get that shifted emphasis, like you were talking about, Sean, right? Because they taste good to her makes us kind of like find that object, right? It tastes good to her, right? Um, Of the sentence. But when you have the next line, they taste good, it kind of shifts it back onto the plums right the emphasis goes more back onto like thinking about how the plums are tasting there's even this like almost funneling effect because the way the third line operates you get the to her at the beginning of the line but then you're left at the end of that line with they taste um and there's this magic thing i think that happens where before you're kind of flung to the next line you kind of linger on that tasting right and you're more interested in that like verb the verbing of tasting than you are in the plums or in the noun the nouns in her or in the plums
0: that third line of the second stanza also serves to unlock some of the alliterative potential of this phrase that you don't necessarily experience when you read it as it appears on the first line to her they taste, those T sounds are very thrillingly alliterative and make one want to linger, as you put it, on that line in a way that they didn't when you encountered them elsewhere. Those T sounds are detonated by being isolated with one another in this way.
2: And part of that is that most of the T sounds are in words that we would normally not pay much attention to, like they and to. And part of what I think is happening here is that there's a lot of emphasis being placed on parts of speech that do a lot of work, but don't normally stick out because they're not major nouns or verbs. And in a way, I think that kind of relates to what Asia was talking about with the shift from talking about taste is like a, a verb that you undergo as opposed to like an experience that you reflect upon. Uh, if you think about trying to describe an experience, one of the things that's difficult is it's impossible to see like the shape of a table without seeing the color of it uh, when you're actually experiencing it in real life and all the different aspects of an experience seem to sort of like form a totality or they come together. You can't really parse them apart. But when you write things out in language, you, you sort of have to split them apart. So you'd have to say like, I looked at the white table or I looked at the green table, even though your experience of it is going to have those walking, you know, Uh, hand-in-hand, it's not going to be something that you take separately.
0: I think that you've just provided us with something of a cipher for the first stanza there. Uh, Cognitively, the gesture of munching a plum on line break, the street a paper bag, line break, of them in her hand. I'm able to encounter the paper bag before I encounter the paper bag of plums. Yeah. That experience that's impossible in the way I typically would cognize this joint object of a paper bag that is also a paper bag of plums. There's a schism being introduced there. But what I really want to talk about is the on at the beginning, because you rightly called our attention to how parts of speech that aren't normally very significant are being foregrounded here. What's that on doing in the first line?
1: mm That's a really great question. I was going to go back to your first point for a second, Isaac, and just say that's like one of the most amazing things that poetry allows us to do, to watch how units of sense expand. So that line, that movement from the second to the third line in the first stanza, a paper bag, that could be a a stop right there, munching on a plum on the street from a paper bag, right, period. It would be a different, it would be a different uh, preposition. But we can expand, That, that sentence can keep like expanding out of itself. And in prose, you wouldn't think about that. But in poetry, it really makes you think about, like, because of where the line breaks are, it can make you think a little bit more about how sense can keep kind of building on itself and how far you can push that. Uh, but to go back to your question about the on and the first sentence at the first line, actually, in some ways, it kind of emphasizes that same thing that the sense can keep building but actually that's not my one of my favorite line breaks in this poem because it feels too it feels so abrupt. Um I know there has to be something that comes next. I kind of enjoy more when those expansions happen and you're they don't really they aren't really necessary.
0: I think you're getting that why this is so interesting there. I, I agree with you that it isn't the strongest line break in the poem and I think a lot of its function is A lot of the function of having on on the first line rather than the second line is to prevent the second line from being on the street a paper bag, which is a complete thought that you can read in the common day, linear, unsegmented way you'd be accustomed to read that sentence if it weren't in a poem. I think that it's sort of avoiding that uh, sense of linear completeness so that the reader will... Be still grasping and still groping as they read that second line, and without that groping, they wouldn't get to experience the paper bag in such a generative way.
1: I think it's interesting that actually is a good segue to the third stanza, right? Because the third stanza actually plays both games. It has that thing where you have to grope further because it ends with the first line ends with by, but then the second line is actually kind of a complete thought. So you have you can see it by line break the way she gives herself. And that idea of giving oneself, and especially when it's charged with a female body giving herself, feels like a complete thought and feels like a kind of like very, um, it's very suggestive. You could end with that kind of ambiguity. You can see it by the way she gives herself, period. But there is no period here, right? The line can, so it could be a complete thought. It could have a period, but it does continue to unfold, right? The way she gives herself to the one half sucked out in her hand so you have kind of both that groping feeling you're talking about Isaac from what at the end of the first line you can see it by uh what is that thing the way she gives herself could end here but this is kind of that like expansive feeling I really enjoy that gives me a lot of pleasure in a poem the way she gives herself to the one half and then more ah sucked out in her hand I don't know that that kind of like constant inflating um kind of blowing more air into the poem giving more life i don't know that those kinds of line breaks i really ooh, i get a really good like shiver down my back when i read those things
2: yeah like a specific thing that it's doing is it's taking something that could easily get uh lost in a, if it were just sort of part of a larger sentence and in that case you have two things that are both sexual where like if you if you read the whole sentence you might hear them but you very well might not so like you talked about like it's a woman giving herself. And then the last one is sucked out in her hand, which like, again, there's a way of presenting that that would easily or more easily let you lose sight of the sexual charge of saying sucked out in her hand. And I would notice that towards the end of the poem, you have a lot more lines where uh, it's it's that second kind of line break you're talking about where a, a complete thought is emerging that wouldn't have emerged without the line break. So in the last stanza, you have, a solace of ripe plums, which is not, it's not any kind of sentence, but it is a complete thought. And then you have seeming to fill the air. Same thing. It's not a complete sentence, but it is a complete thought. And then you return to they taste good to her, given as a whole for the first time since the fourth line. It seems like part of what's happening is you're tracking the way that the woman settles into the experience that she's having, which I think is part of the significance of the title to a poor old woman, that even though She's this sort of like in the title, somewhat pitiable figure for the whole poem. She seems to be having a wonderful experience. And the experience really seizes like um, seizes upon something that could very easily be lost or or sort of ignored and amplifies the sensual aspects of it into something that is a form of solace, which is a kind of mindfulness.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I think what you're kind of pointing at, Chan, the sensuality of the poem And then kind of the, like, recognition of that sensuality is kind of played out in the way the line, they taste good to her, kind of functions. Because that second stanza feels like more of a, like, rolling those words around in your mouth until they're almost just sounds and not really words. Um, Although it's constantly shifting sense, like we were talking about before, and shifting emphasis on where to kind of, like, locate your attention. There's another way that they just kind of become sounds at a certain point. You're just kind of moving them around. Um, almost the same way you like chew or move food through your mouth, right? But that last line, they taste good to her, often the more you repeat something, the less sensible, like the less sensical it becomes, right? That thing that happens where if you write the same word over and over again, it basically just looks like garbage at a certain point. The last line, they taste good to her, actually feels like the most like sensible, like sensical line in a certain way. It's like the clearest iteration of that same line that we've heard like four times already. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're pointing at.
2: It's like at the end of the poem the idea of they taste they taste good to her is like one some kind of valuable content where earlier in the poem when it first arises it's like completely inadequate to the situation because it's just you know like yeah like she's eating them because she likes them that's not like a, that's not worth saying it's and not then, news yeah and then like that second stanza as you're saying is like repeating it and breaking it apart to the point that like it no longer seems like it means anything or it, it's, it sort of sounds like pure noise or another way of thinking about it is that it's like breaking it apart to the point that whatever it means doesn't seem like it's something that's obvious or natural. And then the rest of the poem is a process of getting you to the point where looking at an old woman, enjoying plums is actually something worth noticing. It's worth noticing in the way that she is noticing the taste of the plums and the experience of sucking them out.
0: And the line breaks have sort of scored your consciousness to make all the moves it needs to have that realization because it's got these choreographed moves that it has to make because of the line breaks.
1: Mm, I like the idea of ending on that idea of choreographing the movements in this poem. That feels really right. Um, one of those like really pleasurable form and content meeting things. Um, so if you guys are cool with that, I'm, I'm cool with letting Isaac have the last word on choreographing there.
2: I accept. In the last episode, Isaac never got the last word. Never. Drew. I think I'm next. There's a uh, Marianne Moore poem I want to do called What Are Years? What are years? What is our innocence? What is our guilt? All are naked. None is safe. And Whence is courage? The unanswered question. The resolute doubt. Dumbly calling. Deafly listening. That in misfortune, even death encourages others, and in its defeat stirs the soul to be strong. He sees deep and is glad who accedes to mortality, and in his imprisonment rises upon himself as the sea in a chasm, struggling to be free and unable to be in its surrendering, finds its continuing. So he who strongly feels behaves. The very bird grown taller as he sings steals his form straight up. Though he is captive, his mighty singing says, Satisfaction is a lowly thing. How pure a thing is joy. This is mortality. This is eternity.
0: We talked in the uh, Louise Gluck discussion about the ability of a poet to get away with things. This very first line is something that a poet should absolutely not be able to get away with without earning it. And that would suggest that it would have to appear very deep into a very worthy poem to be something that you could dare to write down and then allow to see the light of day. But in this poem, it's the first line, and it does not stop me as a reader. And I think that the lack of a question mark and then the line break may have something to do with that what is our innocence, comma, line break? What is our guilt? All are line break, naked, none is safe. The poem is choreographing rapid forward movement in the beginning there by interrupting units of sense and units of grammar with line breaks, and that sort of compels me to digest these lines that I might be tempted to spit out otherwise.
2: And it's also setting you up for something in the second stanza where it's, it feels like the really dazzling use of line breaks is in the second stanza But what's already happening in the first stanza, which Isaac is pointing us to is this series of really rapid fire claims, which feel like they never arrive in a resolvable form. So, like, before you get What is Our Innocence, you have What is Our Guilt, and the title's already been What Are Years. So, even there, it feels like we're working in such broad abstracts, but over the course of the first stanza, there's a series of things that feel, like, paradoxical or contradictory. So, you have Resolute Doubt, Dumbly Calling, Deafly Listening, and you have others that aren't paradoxical but feel like they're made paradoxical by being put into that kind of sequence. So, like, if resolute doubt dumbly calling definitely listening feel like they're all oxymorons then unanswered question feels like a similar kind of oxymoron even though it really isn't just because the context makes it feel like something that shouldn't make sense or doesn't make sense or is contradictory and it it really feels like the the series of you know quick uh, grammatical fragments is forcing you along before you can totally sort out what it is that you're reading even though it's it is it's completely parsable like you can make sense of it it just feels like such a headlong rush normally
1: right well she employs so many different tools to make that move so quickly right isaac's totally spot on to point out the way that um the comma at the end of the first line moves us down We have that question mark that that should stop us again, especially since they're parallel. The big thing she keeps using is that parallel structure, right? What is our innocence? What is our guilt? Parallel. All are naked. None is safe. That feels a little bit chiastic or something. And whence is courage? That could pause us. The unanswered question, the resolute doubt, parallel, dumbly calling, deftly listening, right? Adverb followed by the verb, adverb followed by the verb. We have like all of these parallel paired structures so we keep kind of anticipating, we have like that wedded appetite for what's going to come next. We keep like looking for that next step, right? You you don't even, and especially since we're kind of, these are almost abstracted, you just keep looking for something to, very concrete to land on. You're totally right, John, they're parsable. But you really don't get that thing to land on until midway through the second stanza.
2: Yeah, and I feel like part of what happens there is... Um... A lot of what happens in the rest of the poem is a meditation on what it means to keep going. And so when it says at the end of the first stanza that in misfortune, even death encourages others and in its defeat stirs the soul to be strong. When you're reading along, if it were, you know, in misfortune, even death encourages others and in its defeat stirs. If you stopped there, what you'd get was, oh, this is a thing. That even when it's defeated is still moving that'd be kind of like that line about how like even a worm being stepped on is like can still turn, but before you can fully form that thought it's suddenly someone else it, someone else is actually being stirred so it's in its defeat stirs the soul to be strong, which is no longer even when it's knocked down it's 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 you know bloodied but not bowed it's it's down but not out it feels like it's saying that for a moment but that's suddenly replaced with. It stirs the soul to be strong. The soul in the abstract, the soul of someone else, someone looking at this suffering individual, can actually get encouragement from it, and that's a really quick bait and switch. It seems like the second and third stanzas are really kind of wrestling with the feeling on the one hand that when someone strives after something or you know does something heroic, it is fatalistic, you know, uh, meaningless. It 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 merely has to happen. Uh, On the one hand, or it's, you know, liberatory, it's empowering, and it's this sort of like rupture. Uh, And part of the way that it that, um, it makes that struggle feel interesting and not feel too abstract or rote is by making it hard for you to pin down line by line, whether you're taking one side or the other.
0: And yet it very much drags you forward to continue seeking... A resolution that would enable you to come down on one of those two sides. That's why I find the uh, the question mark after the soul to be strong to be so devastating. The rug is being pulled out from under me on that line in in such a delightfully villainous way.
2: Yeah, because even if it's like someone else is taking you know courage from this example, it's still in the form of a, a hypothetical. So like even there it doesn't feel like you're you're quite being given something to hold on to. And that already was like the 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 compromise position, and even the compromise position isn't secure here.
1: Right. Which actually is then enacted in the way the punning works in the next sentence, right? He sees deep and is glad the sea in a chasm struggling to be free and unable to be. So you have yeah. this like ability to like look deep into something, into this chasm, right? but you're still struggling to be free and unable to be. it almost feels like it's inverted midway through that second stanza and it seems to kind of operate around that again this like pairing doubling kind of feeling um, but this time in punning rather than in repetition
2: and one of the reason that Marianne Moore is really good with line breaks is that she is using a lot of other techniques alongside line breaks so like age is already talking about the punning and there's all kinds of other auditory stuff happening. So like between seas as in looks and sea and sea as in the ocean, you have a seeds, which is damn near the same as both of them, but it's also kind of setting up the, the shift from one to the other. So if you start by thinking about a kind of like um, anthropomorphized or like even, even a person, then like looking feels like it has a certain amount of like choice and agency and power And then the image of the sea rising in a chasm feels completely powerless or like there's no there's no deliberate agency or there's no choice there. And a seeds is kind of in between. It's on the one hand, accepting something which is a sort of choice, but it's also, uh, you know, giving into something. And so even though it's not a normal rhyme structure, it's also something that the, the line breaks is allowing her to sort of snake through the poem for you.
1: Well, it's interesting. Even your definition of his seeds is actually what's uh, defined in the last two lines of the second stanza, right? And it's surrendering finds its continuing, right? So she has this really fabulous way. Marianne Moore is so aware of herself that she is riffing on herself as the poem kind of unfolds, not just in the way the sounds unfold, um, which was kind of your second point right there, Sean, because you get that with the way the... um, the assonance kind of operates in the, that second stanza, also, right? So, C, C, a seed, mortality, to be. We have all of these different E sounds that keep coming up, but you don't even notice them. They're so subtle in the way that they keep kind of spinning and folding on themselves.
2: And, like, I think one of the things that that really draws your attention to is this kind of crux moment towards the end of that stanza. So, she has this image of like the, the sea in a chasm uh, rising up which is on the one hand, this like awesome, you know, hydraulic power that's going to erode the chasm further. And on the other hand, it's just complete necessity. And there's, there's like sort of obviously no will or choice there. And right after that, she says, struggling to be line break free and unable to be. And on, at one level you can read B as just like the copulative. So like it's trying to be free, but you, you also can experience it as struggling to be as in like just simply to exist And so you're sort of torn between one reading of it where it's like, it's just trying to exist. It's free and unable to exist. And another reading of that would be, it's struggling to be free, but it's unable to be free. And both of those feel like they're, they're sort of equal and like parallel possibilities that kind of entail each other or like sort of depend upon each other.
1: Absolutely. And that's so highlighted in this poem because of the way the line breaks work, right? If this were just written in a prose sentence, you would not be able to linger over that unit of sense being able to operate in both ways. Like you just so beautifully put it, Sean.
0: and I think that it goes even farther than that. Yes, we do need the line breaks in order for those two senses of be to coexist we also need this gesture to occur in a poem where we have the image of constraining delineations producing hydraulic power and also have a poem itself that uses constraining delineations i.e line breaks to produce hydraulic power if form wasn't following function here I think that the line break to isolate the existential quality of the verb be would be a very cheap trick that I would I would not be prepared to let her get away with even her I would not be prepared to bear it if form wasn't following function throughout this stanza so flawlessly. Sure. Yeah. Valid. It's like
2: it's so virtuoso.
1: Well, and then she pulls that last that like last turn to get into that third stanza. It almost feels like Emily Dickinson the way she says so he so he who stro- strongly feels behaves the way that we're supposed to then read that back onto the like sea in a chasm. I don't yeah. know. There's such a like bizarre moment where like okay, I have to hold all of these associations in my mind at one. I don't know. It's I've never thought of Marion Moore as being particularly like Dickinsonian, but like. In this moment, she feels like she like really learned her lessons from Emily Dickinson. Totally. It's funny,
0: because where it sends me to is Elliot. Funny. It sends me to cross staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves in The Hollow Men.
2: Uh, and look, nice.
0: everything sends me to that, because that's, that's a line that I just say to myself a couple of times a day, every day.
1: Rats feet over broken glass, man, every day. Yeah. Isaac
2: Isaac's Isaac's mind is like wind in a field. Alright. Well,
1: in a future podcast, we're going to recreate the fight that we <laughs> had once about whether the wasteland or the hollow men is no, the most we're perfect Elliot poem. LA <laughs> no,
0: oh, no, no yeah,
1: and we're not <laughs> so gonna
0: obviously it. the Hollow Men, no reasonable person could ever debate it.
2: Uh that wasn't even what the fight was. But no, that's uh Thankfully, that episode is lost in advance. Um, (laughs) All right, back to Marianne Moore. (laughs) uh, No, but I I actually want to go back to Asia's point about it being very Dickinsonian. That, like, it it does it does do that thing that Dickinson is so excellent at of having like a, a use of figurative language that is itself a condensation of earlier uses of figurative language, which I think is part of the kind of hydraulic power that Isaac was getting at earlier. That the poem is sort of like building up tension with this kind of mixture between like abstractions that are being forced into question through the the use of paradox. And then really sort of like distinctly sort of sensuous sound effects and like really evocative imagery.
1: Yeah. And she kind of plays that, she plays that uh, game one more time in that next sentence turn, right? The very bird grown taller as he sings, steals his form straight up. Right. Because the emphasis on the very bird immediately makes me want to go hunt for where the bird shows up earlier and there is no bird right so again pulling that dickinson trick where like oh okay so he who strongly feels the sea and the chasm these are all the bird and they're also obviously not the bird so you have to go like find the antecedent that doesn't exist it's like mind-boggling and she pulls it off she like fucking pulls it off marianne moore my god
2: yeah, no, I'm 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 cool with ending there because like we could parse the last several lines, but I don't think it would add anything to the episode.
1: Uh okay, so I think that means we're ready to move on to our third poem of the evening, Isaac.
0: Sure. So the poem I'd like to close with is Dream Song 89 by John Berryman. In a blue series towards his sleepy eyes. They slid like wonder, women tall and small, of every shape and size. In many languages, to lisp, we do. To Henry almost waking, what is the night at all? His closed eyes beckon you. In the marriage of the dead, a new routine. He gasped his crowded vows past lids shut tight, and a many rings fumbled on. His coffin, like grand central to the brim, Filled up and emptied with the lapse of light. Which one will waken him? Oh, she must startle like a fallen gown, content with speech like an old sacrament, in deaf ears lying down, blazing through darkness till he feels the cold and blindness of his hopeless tenement while his black arms unfold.
1: So one of the most amazing things about being confronted with a dream song... For those of our listeners who uh, might not have encountered dream songs before, there's a whole lot of them. Berryman started with 77 and then just kept writing them until he died. So there's hundreds of them now. I wasn't
0: writing the dream songs that killed him, though.
1: <laughs> well, it didn't help. <laughs> that, another, another podcast episode. So, and they all follow, they all have the same number of lines, give or take one or two. Many of them will even follow um, similar stanza breaks, but not all of them. They're kind of like loose sonnets almost. And some of them feel like dreams and some of them don't. This is one of the ones that really advertises itself as a dream and kind of expands in that way. Normally, I would expect the turns to be a little bit more abrupt and the turns, at each line aren't as abrasive as I would have expected. Uh, So you get that kind of sense in the first stanza. In a blue series toward his sleepy eyes, they slide like wonder, women tall and small. It's very soft sounding and it kind of slips from one line to the next. There's a book a book called The Art of the Poetic Line by James Longenbach, which is part of the Grey Wolf series on poetic craft that talks about line breaks being a really difficult term, that really what you're dealing with is where a line ends, that it would be better to call them line endings rather than line breaks. And this this slipping between lines really kind of speaks to that point to me. Uh, the line doesn't break here. It just kind of ends and moves on to the next it's a more subtle kind of movement that kind of operates in the beginning of this poem.
0: I'm very much a proponent of line break as the term, because I think the separating or segregating or severing that happens when a poet ends a line is always the, interesting consequence of that gesture always the most salient consequence of that gesture even when it is a deliberately smooth line break like this one because even here the separating or segregating or severing is unlocking something valuable just on these first two lines in a blue series towards his sleepy eyes they slid like wonder the smooth cognitive progress that you're able to make over that line break is enabled by the line break because we have in a blue series towards his sleepy eyes, the series image stands on its own. Then you have, they slid like wonder. Wonder is an abstract singularity. It's something that can't quite coexist smoothly with a series under normal conditions but Berryman has created laboratory conditions in which those two can smoothly coexist and the one can blend into the other
2: yeah like a general thing that I think line breaks too for Berryman is that he really likes weird like inverted like sentences where the subject and verb show up really late to the game and so and I think this is kind of what Isaac is getting at that like he can have they slid like wonder show up really late and not only can you carse out the sentence because he's broken it up into two chunks for you it also allows a prepositional phrase that should be dependent and and should only be like a, a modification of they slid like wonder become this like thing that stands on its own and is actually the, the clue that you need to understand in what sense he's trying to tell you that something slid like wonder
0: the sonic smoothness Of this poem is also facilitated by the line breaks because the S alliteration bridges the two lines. In a blue series towards his sleepy eyes, line break, they slid like wonder, women tall and small. The the W's are really dominant in that second line because they are right next to each other. That's a very sort of thudding alliteration. Wonder women tall and small but the s serves to bridge and embrace it
1: yeah it's actually interesting um some of our conversations tonight have kind of made me very aware that part of what makes for really successful highlighting or kind of like working with enjambment or line break is the way the other sounds draw attention to themselves around that line break So these poems are really excellent examples where there's other things that kind of divide up the units of sense that run across the syntax, but also run across the line break themselves. So one way to like kind of group sense in that first stanza is around those S sounds, right? These units kind of start clustering together, anything that kind of has that sibilance to it, which is a lesson, you know, we forget, I think that um, there's lots of ways that we group meaning. And that's one of them um, is by sound quality, right? That's why rhymes are so effective. We remember things if they rhyme because we want to keep those units of sound together in our heads.
0: The alliteration is absolutely performing that sorting or grouping function that you're pointing to. I think that's very important. The the S sounds reemerge in a very provocative way on LISP. Of every shape and size, in many languages to lisp we do, to Henry almost waking, the S sound in the lisp is very strong, and it's even, you know, a word you would use to indicate a very pronounced S sound, so that's form following function again. The smooth, uninterrupted series of fungible potential brides that cannot awaken Henry are tied to this S sound. To Lisp we do, and then after that line break we have to Henry almost waking. That K is very sharp and very hard and is a, a rock right in the middle of this river of sibilance.
2: So I want to I want to cheat and jump ahead because I feel like we're spending a lot of time in the headlands of the foothills. So we got to get got got to into this poem. the uh, The line break in the middle of the poem where he says his coffin like grand central to the brim filled up and emptied with the lapse of light. Part of what strikes me there is to the brim filled up is a case where filled up is not, is not actually adding new information to brim, but what is happening is that filled up and emptied with the lapse of light is allowed to become its own unit. This is something that we were kind of talking about earlier, and really at the very beginning with the second half of the Williams poem, that things that could easily slip by are um, allowed to sort of take on elements of sense that can interact with each other so i'm thinking about how like if the arrival point is like what he's getting to is filled up and emptied with the lapse of light that on its own is this you know reasonably it's like weird but it's a it's not too hard of an image to parse it's like it fills up and empties the way that like a light flashes on and off and like a room fills up with light and then there's darkness but when that's a modification of his coffin like grand central to the rim. (laughs) It's not a way that you're used to thinking about light. Like, I'm aware that light is made out of particles, but, like, I don't normally think of it as particles and definitely not as particles like people filling up Grand Central Station. And then it also feels like having all of that be a comment on his coffin is, again, I mean, like, in some ways, I think it all comes back to Emily Dickinson, just in life. (laughs) And that feels like a a similar movie we were talking about earlier, where, like, you have nested and... You know, each one of them is like sensual and visceral and you know you you can, you can feel it, but then the way that they interact with each other is like incredibly uh, slippery and hard to get a hold of.
1: Well, it's also nice um, okay. because of the huge inversion of scale there, right? Um, a coffin being the size of Grand Central and a particle of light being the size of a person. It's just so pleasurable to rethink, to like kind of invert the scale of the world that way. Um, yeah, that does feel like dick- that, that does feel like Dickinson a little bit. It also that that feeling of scale really moves a lot in this poem for me because um, the way that second stanza opens within the marriage of the dead, that feels like a very grandiose kind of moment too um it doesn't it's not scale in the same way of like perspectival or like size but it feels like a kind of similar um trying to make something larger trying to make a ritual larger than it like you know like a marriage ritual is obviously a big ritual it's between but it's between two people um and this becomes like this like much larger grander scale of this kind of ritual that we know right a new routine it feels like that much larger and that much more grandiose it's
2: it's articulated like it's an anthropological observation. Yeah. Like, I went to the dead, and their marriage ceremonies are like this.
0: Uh, to go back to the line break that you initially brought us to, Sean, I agree 100% with your reading of what it does to the second line, filled up and emptied with the lapse of light. There's something it also does to the initial line, his coffin, like Grand Central to the brim, that's similar to that gesture at the beginning with uh, the series versus the wonder, the plurality of series being isolated from the singularity of wonder. There's a way that putting a line break here isolates the cognitive motion of a three-dimensional space filling up from what it's filling up with. You could also draw back to the, uh, the paper bag of plums that can be just a paper bag first here. His coffin, like Grand Central to the brim, to the brim is a moving part, but we only experience it when it's performing some sort of larger cognitive process. We don't think of it as a part that moves in isolation, but by putting this line break here, to the brim being separated from filling, we have a coffin that is like something to the brim, and to the brim is not an intensifier one uses for similarity or kinship one doesn't say that she is as pretty as a rail right
1: well it's actually funny because there's this moment you're you're exactly right isaac and there's this like really bizarre moment where it almost feels like the coffin is filled with the building of grand central right like his coffin like grand central to the brim, like not literally filled with because we don't get the filled with yet, but there's almost the sense that like it implies that um, there's something about the coffin that is just so grand central, grand central to it's very like that, that whatever like capacity it has is just so grand central to it. Like, I don't know. It's so, it, that is really interesting. You're totally right. And it functions that way because of the way where the line break comes in.
0: When the, the sense of being in a great big three dimensional space is so central to Grand Station the Grand Central Station that even Billy Collins noticed this, that Billy Collins' poem that's always on the subway is invoking this same idea, right? Even he knew it. But he wasn't John Berryman. What John Berryman has done is taken the smallest possible moving part that can perform this function and isolated it from the other cogs that it connects to so you can see it turning independently as you read it
1: what's so interesting about this poem I, I don't know if you guys are feeling this too that that we talk a lot about we talked a lot about how the first stanza kind of slips along and there's this funny way that um the poem starts un- to unhinge itself a little bit by introducing kind of like unfamiliar diction in the second stanza and that happens again the line that jumped out at me when you, when we were reading it aloud is the the first line of the third stanza oh she must startle like a fallen gown content with speech like an old sacrament the idea of a fallen gown startling right the personification i, I love i love personified um objects right uh feels it's like so... a gold
2: fawn pardon it's like a gold fawn
1: yeah <laughs> Go home. <laughs> uh, I'm almost there. Uh, but yeah, that, that kind of like defamiliarized language that kind of makes you pause over it uh, seems to be the rule that comes into play about halfway through the poem. And that seems to be more of the governing kind of principle or something as Berryman kind of progresses through this.
0: And it's so lovely that it's startled like a fallen gown rather than a falling gown. The startling presumably happens when someone allows her gown to fall, but we don't get to see that in the same way that Henry will never be wakened by all these dream characters or spirits who become his fungible sequence of brides, but can't awaken him in the same way that he presumably doesn't get to have his moment of awakening. We don't get to have the moment of startling. It's already a fallen gown by the time we're introduced to it yet startle comes first in the line.
1: Yeah. Um, this is a, this is a really interesting example of a poem that um, I think because of the line breaks, because of the rhyme scheme, because it kind of favors this kind of sibilance and assonance that makes you slip through the lines pretty quickly, and because it has this, obviously, a dreamlike quality in this poem. That's not obvious in dream songs. A lot of the dream songs feel more like nightmares. This one just happens to feel a little bit more dreamlike. And has some nightmare qualities to it anyway. I I think it doesn't advertise the kind of uh, interesting diction choices it makes, which makes them all the more surprising when you kind of finally land on them. Like the Grand Central Station coffin, like the startled, startled, like a fallen gown, like the deaf ears lying down. Like that's bizarre too. These kind of like disembodied ears that like are able to lie down somewhere.
0: Oh, see, I read that as going back to the uh, the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So, oh, she must startle like a fallen gown, content with speech like an old sacrament in deaf ears lying down. So the sacrament is lying down in these deaf ears.
1: Oh, lovely. But see, that's a really excellent example of the line break distracting from different types of sense, right? Because... If it stands on its own, I really want to read it standing on its own so that it feels really disembodied and strange. But yes, you're totally right. Um, it could be the personified sacrament lying down in ears, which, again, is still very strange, right? Because sacraments don't lie down and sound doesn't lie down in ears, right? Sound, like, gets funneled into ears. So the strangeness of the language is still heightened by the way that the sense is broken up across the lines. Yeah, totally. Totally.
0: It's, uh, it's appropriate that you went to this sort of Orpheus disembodied or removed organs or limbs or all that. These ears that can lie down. I think there's something appropriate there where we have uh, this final line. Blazing through darkness till he feels the cold and blindness of his hopeless tenement while his black arms unfold. We're getting out of the dream and his arms that were presumably doing some sort of clutching or embracing gesture are unfolding that's a gesture they can only be doing on themselves in response to what's happening inside his dream world. Henry is not Mayakovsky. Henry knows that his own arms clutching each other or his disembodied ears, as you're reading them, are not a successful encounter with anything, just as these dream brides are not a real experience of mutuality.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I would I would definitely agree that Part of what happens here is that the like the first part of the stanza, Oshima started like a fallen gown, content with speech, like an old sacrament in deaf ears lying down. It's like so oriented towards this imagined woman that when it finally rebounds upon like Henry, the 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 main character of the poem, it's an even more sort of like abrupt shift. And and I think this this like short line in deaf ears lying down draws your attention to the fact that you're not sure how the shift is being made so like how does this imaginary scenario with the the woman like a like a falling gown get you to blazing through darkness till he feels the cold and blindness of his hopeless tenement which is which is also sort of deliberately paradoxical blazing through darkness till he feels the cold and blindness like fire that creates cold and blindness which implies i think that like this is about like um a kind of like failed communion or a failed like a, a a failure to um imaginably commune with someone
1: yeah and it's interesting the different levels that that could operate on right is that because this is all happening in a dream and the dream gets interrupted is that because like
0: one could read this as the appearance of the female figure that can wake him the wake is also is both wake him from his dream and awaken his consciousness or awaken his sort of erotic being in one way or another. And the fact that it's on a stanza break that's marking the distinction between this pure dream sequence in the second stanza and the awakening in the third stanza allows it to straddle those uh, those two senses.
2: You know, I feel like we've got a um, bang but a whimper situation.
1: I think this actually uh, might be one of the best examples of a dream song that's a that's a whimper and not a bang. A series of whimpers. Yeah, no, it
2: it feels very it feels very sort of sad and tender. Yeah. Um, it feels very it, like there. A lot of them are vulnerable, but the kind of vulnerability here is sort of um, yeah. It's much more kind of like I don't know, delicate, slow, patient.
1: It lacks the bombast, which is really lovely. Okay. I think maybe we want to kind of recap. What have we learned about line breaks tonight?
0: So I think one of the simplest ways of putting it might be that units of language acquire meaning and acquire potential readings and aesthetic impact from distance or proximity from other units of language. And line breaks enable the poet to script that distance
2: and I think one thing that goes with that is when mediocre poets rely heavily on line breaks, what they what they're often doing is like trying to use it as like a surgical strike where like all of these poets, sadly true with people like Moore um, and Williams and Berryman are incorporating lots and lots of other uh, auditory and like figurative techniques into their use of line breaks. And they're, they're deliberately using syntax in interesting ways and creating tensions and paradoxes. And so like the line breaks have a much more like architectural function where it's it's like, it's not something that's, that's sort of dividing something up that could exist prior to the line breaks. It's like something that in the way that Isaac was putting it, it can be used to sort of create larger and smaller and closer and further sets of connections and, and like associations within a poem.
1: I think that's our line break episode, guys.
0: Boy, on time and under budget. Yeah.
1: Woohoo!